I'm Otto Penzler, and this is The Mysterious Podcast, brought to you by The Mysterious Bookshop, The Mysterious Press, MysteriousPress.com, and Open Road Integrated Media. This is Rob Hart of MysteriousPress.com, and with us is one of our authors, Gary Phillips. Hello, Gary. Rob. How are you? Good. Good. How are you tonight? Fine. Fine. Thanks for having me, by the way. Well, thanks for uh, being on our list. We're excited to have you. <laughs> so, how do you feel about the whole ebook thing? Are you like a physical book guy or an ebook guy? Well, of course, I'm, I'm an old uh, uh, curmudgeon now. It's so sad to say this, but uh, I am probably pretty much more of a physical book guy. Having said that, of course, I understand that ebooks. books uh, can't be ignored. Uh, they are, in fact, uh, uh, a great way, to, of course, to carry around, uh, have material with you. You don't have to lug these uh, these big old heavy books around. My wife, in fact, bought me a Kindle. This must have been about oh my god, two Christmas so two years ago, two Christmases ago. My wife bought me a Kindle. Of course, it stayed in my uh, sock drawer. Huh. And uh, but then finally, my wife just said, "Look, you know what? If you're not going to use the damn thing, I'm going to use it." I said, go right ahead, dear. And, uh, and sure enough, she started to use it. But I tell you this, now, since she's been using it, and of course, since, since uh, MysteriousPress.com has brought uh, the Ivan Monk books back to life uh, on Kindle, I have to say I have at least now had the experience of, of reading uh, uh, more than one book on the Kindle. And I have to say it's pretty uh, relaxing. I wasn't intimidated. Uh, it, was, it was easy to go through. And now, in fact, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a couple of uh, uh, novellas, ebook novellas, uh, designed just just to be ebooks, and then eventually maybe uh, into print. Great. Now we have your uh, your Ivan Monk character. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for uh, for Ivan? Sure. Ivan Monk comes out of that long tradition of the of the private eye, as we all uh, know, of course. Uh, started well, starting way back, of course, I suppose, with the cowboy, and then eventually moved from the penny dreadfuls to the pulps. It's funny enough. I just happened to re- be reading something the other day. Uh, uh, for the old timers and, and pulp aficionados, they might remember. Uh, uh, I believe it was uh, Ger- John uh, Carroll Daly who wrote the Race Williams uh, short stories. Who's kind of considered really one of the first real sort of modern private eyes. And, and you can read a lot of Race Williams stuff and see a lot of, and even Spillane and bits being influenced by that in terms of the creation of Mike Hammer. Anyway, all that's to say is that uh, uh, Monk comes out of that tradition, particularly certainly Hammett and Chandler. And I and I knew. Always that uh, my background is a community organizer and a union organizer, and I've done nonprofit work and what have you. Anyway, so I always knew drawing on that uh, experience, I knew that Monk would reflect some of that, uh, but as well as, of course, reflect some of this, this tradition we've talked about or we, I've mentioned. And uh, so when the riots happened in 92 in Los Angeles, um, I, had written, I had written a previous novel with the character, but the, I couldn't sell that novel. But I, but the character and, and 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 the characters around him, his friends and his associates, always stuck with me. And so when the riots happen, and I'm I'm working sort of in organi- in, in an organization that not only is dealing with um, downtown and the movers and shakers downtown, but also uh, gang truce members. So I, uh, one hand, I'm in I'm in Watts and the housing projects in in, in the day, or and then I'm at some other meeting downtown at night. So I always thought, well, these are kind of these very interesting worlds of L.A. I know them. And I thought that they could make a great context then for what Violent Spring became, which is the first Monk novel set in the aftermath of the 92 riots uh, about a year, year and a half out uh, as the body of a a Korean merchant who disappeared prior to the riots, a couple weeks prior to the riots, is unearthed at a groundbreaking ceremony 
and then we're off to the races as my character is hired by the uh, uh, Korean Merchants Association, Mike Ivan Monk being a black private eye, hired to find out who killed this, this individual. Okay, and so you, you talk about the riots and, and your, your personal history. You know, what kind of catharsis did you get out of writing this character? Yeah, that's a great question, Rob, because, of course, uh, I think, well, I, I can't speak for all writers. I, I just know that, that writing is definitely therapy for me. Uh, if I couldn't write, man, I, I think I'd go nuts. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, uh, listen, we write mystery novels, mystery and crime. Uh, I don't write them to be uh, polemic. I don't, I don't, political, I don't write them to, to stand on a soapbox. I don't write them to put my politics out there per se. I mean, they're sort of subfused. Hopefully they're subfused in there. And hopefully the real point is that people are entertained. Uh, but I think it helped me to work out a lot of just thoughts and uh, impressions and feelings coming out of the riots then uh, in 92 and being able to put them in a kind of, uh, well, for lack of a better term, a pop cultural context. Not to say, not to say that these are parallel, but it's kind of interesting to note Today we have this sort of brouhaha around uh, Django Unchained, and, and well, you know, oh, you can't use slavery as a as a as a you trivializing slavery because you're using it in this sort of spaghetti Western context and, and this kind of thing. But but I, I whatever we one might say about the film, and I actually enjoy the film. But whatever one might say about that, I think you can take these incidents that exist in our, our lives, these real incidents, the riots, tensions, what have you, and I think you can pay. I think you can both pay homage to them, but I think you can also present them in a very uh, in a different kind of way, as well as a way that I think will not only entertain uh, the readership, but hopefully inform them, but not uh, um, in a way that hits them over the head. Okay. And can you tell us what you're working on right now? I'm working on right now, uh, I've been, uh, there's four Monk novels, and there's a collection called Monkology, which is a collection of short stories, and one novella, I suppose, of, of Monk, Ivan Monk. And I have been toying with, uh, I had started a, a fifth Monk novel some time ago and got sidetracked with some other uh, projects. And uh, this new year, well, I was going to start this new year by getting started that novel again. Well, now, of course, something else has come up again. But uh, somewhere in my head and, and somewhere on the timeline, particularly, I think, toward the middle, at least maybe in the fall of this year, I'm going to get back to this fifth Monk novel. It's going to change It's going to change somewhat because it's been some time since I had begun it. The ma basics of it are going to remain the same. And I guess I'll, be, I'll make a little hint. Uh, as Monk... Um, you know, when, you know, it's like when Splane, I guess, started writing Hammer, or like when Parker started writing, um, started writing Spencer. The, you know, the characters were kind of your age, and then you know, you, you but then as you got older, you, you know, you kept writing more about the characters. And well, they had to, you had to slow their age down somewhat. Uh, and so uh, now I realize that I'm have to, I'm going to slow Monk's age down. But Monk's one of Monk's, his only his kind of mentor uh, figure, and the guy he had worked under as a pri got his private eye license under because he had been a private eye is Dexter Grant, and I do mention in the books that Dexter is a World War II vet. As we know, there ain't a heck of a lot of these World War II vets left around, although, in fact, I know a couple of World War II vets who are pretty spry and, and, and agile, and at least of mind, if not of body. So, but that's a reality. And so I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm forced, I suppose the word is, to, to deal with that. So that will be, I guess the hint will be, it'll be resolved in some fashion uh, as to the fate of, of Dexter Grant because it looms large in my head, I know it's going to loom large in the book uh, when I eventually get to it. So, so kind of in the in the near future is the next Monk novel. Right at this moment, I'm finishing. I've finished two novellas, uh, ebook novellas that are kind of designed as. Uh, in fact, as uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, 
I believe it was uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Rawson on the, on the Lit Re uh, Reactor site mentioned that uh, you know the ebooks have kind of seen this resurgence of the kind of the new I don't know retro seventies uh, 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 vigilante uh, stuff that we well I don't know if you grew up on but I grew up on the Execution of the Punisher etc. And we've kind of seen I think in a lot of ways ebooks are, are kind of this new pulp era. And so to that to that end I'm ha I'm doing these uh, two uh, novellas that are designed in that regard. And in fact, I'm working on uh, a third one where it'll be a kind of uh, sort of a retro, but but set now, but but a retro vigilante character, but hopefully some modern tropes to it. The idea being that I would write the first two or three issues, two or three books, and then sort of hand it off to other writers. Kind of write the write, set it up, write the Bible, and then hand it off to other writers. Uh, but then one of the books that is coming out is called The Essex Man, and The Essex Man is sort of in that mold where uh, we have the uh, the premise being that if what if you took Bruce Wayne. And had this cat who was who had this money, and goes off and he gets training and he trains himself to be the best detective. And he trains himself to be the best uh, martial arts, etc. But rather than put on a cape and a cowl, he just remains a guy in a suit. Uh, but then, what does he do with that? Those skills. What does he do to then, uh, in some ways, my character's case, use those skills, but also because he's got this great big uh, sin. That he has to uh, that he has to make up for. So, hopefully, in the course of the book, people will see what that's about. <laughs> All right, looking forward to it. Thank you, Ron. All right, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Appreciate man. It. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Otto Pensler, and I'm here with Andrew Claven. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I read the manuscript of your new book. Killer in the Wind, and I was taken by the notion that it seems to me you seem to write about heroic figures, people who do the right thing in a world in which people don't always do that. Is this a conscious decision on your part? or It's, it's half of the conscious decision. The other half is to write about flawed heroic figures. In fact, sometimes uh, people attack me for writing characters who are too flawed, too dark, and twisted, and yet, really, I've never, first of all, I've never met anyone who wasn't flawed, and, and seriously flawed, and I've never met people who don't have a dark interior, and so, what I try to show, I, I, I don't, I'm not interested in a guy who's heroic because he feels no fear, because he's a square-jawed good guy who can never do the wrong thing. I'm interested in that place you have to get to, to untie the knots inside yourself before you can do the, the right thing. Right. When I, when I said heroic figures, I wasn't thinking of Superman or Batman <laughs> or a comic figure. Right. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm thinking that the, uh, the central characters and some of the tangential characters in your book have a moral center right. that, uh, that I find very gratifying as a reader. And I didn't know how much of that you did consciously or if this simply reflects your own heroic personality. <laughs> I wish it reflected my own heroic, maybe, maybe my fantasies of my heroic personality. But I think it does, it does reflect something that is a really important issue to me, which is this question, it's kind of the Hamlet question, like how do you know what the right thing to do is? How do you know? How do you know what, what, which part of your conscience is, is real? You know, there's this whole philosophy that's go going around, it's almost taken over our universities of relativism, you know, that 
one one idea of what's right and wrong. Uh, thinking makes it so. Nothing's either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And it goes along with multiculturalism, which is that culture is just as good as this culture, which is a complete nonsense. I mean, it's a to people say it with a straight face, but no one really believes it. No one really believes that the culture of Saudi Arabia is as good as the culture of, of New York or California or, or this, this country in general. And so I try to get to that place where guys have to deal with that. They have to deal with how do you know when to trust your conscience, what's right, what's wrong. And, uh, and that is a heroic question. And it just, to me, it's the essence of fiction. It's the essence of storytelling. Uh, a very good crime writer named Lauren D. Esselman hmm. uh, once wrote to me and said, there is no moral dilemma that if you think about it for a little while, you don't know the right side. You always know the right side. I think that that is true. I think at the at your depths, you know, it's it's hard to get there sometimes, but you know. Yeah. The uh, Killer in the Wind, which will be published in January, the, in January, uh, which is uh, which is just around the corner, uh, deals with very flawed characters, uh, and um, the the villains are not so much flawed as really villainous. <laughs> They're really horrible. You write great villains. No, thank uh, you. Yeah, these these are some of the most villainous, I have to say, these are the, some of the most villainy villains I've ever written. They really are awful, and I, I mean, that part of the, uh, part of the uh, idea of the book is putting them in confrontation with a man who is good against all the odds, and uh, seeing where that leads, you know, what kind of uh, interchange that leads to. The, I, I would say that um, unlike the, the, the villains in some of your other books, the, the primary villains here are less nuanced. Yes. They, they really are yeah. evil. And yes, they Because are. it involves children, and when you involve children, right. there's, it's really hard to have a, gray, a large gray area, wouldn't you say? <laughs> it is, and you know, one of the things that bothers me, that it's not that I dislike the books that have serial killers or have a rule against, but serial killers are a little too easy for me. Serial killers, guys who have this compulsion, who are psychopaths, who feel uh, nothing, um, that that's a representation of evil, and it works in terrific books like Silence of the Lambs. It, it certainly works, um, but it it doesn't really get at the people who, uh, like Shakespeare's Richard the Third, are determined to be villains. You know, people who really uh, do feel things and have thought it through and realize that they can get something out of being uh, evil, and they're going to by golly do it. You know, and that's the people in this book. They really are the worst kind of evil because they're rational. <laughs> Rational by their terms. By their, on their standards. Certainly not by ours. No. no. Uh, well, very interesting. I look forward to uh, seeing the new book when it's ready to go, and I hope you'll come by and sign copies. Uh, but thank you very much for spending time with us today. I always love being here. Hi, this is Otto Penzler at the Mysterious Bookshop, and I'm with Jim Fusilli, whose new book, Road to Nowhere, has just come out. Um, you are now with uh, Thomason Mercer, which is an Amazon publishing company. What's it like to be published by what we would call a non-traditional publisher these days? You know, I, I signed with Amazon to do my previous book, no, uh, Narrow's Gate. And to be honest with you, I just thought they did. They would, they would offer me distribution. I had no idea they had a machine in place. I just thought, how can I get maximum distribution? 
you had self-published that book, or you submitted it to them? How did that work? I don't. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was an amazing coincidence. Uh, it was purchased by Audible to be an Audible book only, an audio book only. And um, in the interim period, Amazon bought Audible. So I got an email one day from somebody in Amazon, and to be honest with you, I didn't really open it. I thought it was a you know pitch for something. I finally opened it, and it turned out we saw your manuscript. We'd love it. We'd love to publish it. So I thought, okay, I don't know what this means. You know, do they slap it up on an ebook and that's it? But it turned out to be that they had a big machine in place with editorial, marketing, and public relations. Um, they asked me if I'd like to do a, a sequel to Narrow's Gate. And I told them that I had relationships in the mystery community that I had abandoned six years ago. And I really wanted to reconnect with these people, that I really liked the mystery community, the thriller community. Uh, thought it was very generous. People were very generous. Uh, with encouragement, and uh, so they said, okay, and that's how Road to Nowhere wound up with Thomas and Mercer. Now, at this point, Thomas and Mercer is pretty much constructed like a traditional publisher, um, trade paper instead of hardcover, a real emphasis on ebooks. but you have an editor, you have a marketing person, you have line editors, public relations, I mean, it's... It, to me, at this point, it doesn't feel any different. You know, when you were published traditionally, uh, you had a pretty good following at the Mysterious Bookshop. You came and you signed books, hardcover books, and uh, a lot of people wondered where you were and why you hadn't written anything for a while. And now you're back. And here we are doing another event with you tonight at the Mysterious <laughs> Bookshop, signing books again. So really, there's very little difference, except that it's a trade paperback rather than a hardcover. And um, while I like to call Amazon the dark side, the evil empire, because it's, you know, essentially ruined my my business as a bookseller, um, I have an anthology coming out with them next year that is exclusively for Amazon. And um, it's it, it is becoming part of our world, our publishing world. We can't ignore it. They're the biggest bookseller in the world by a wide margin. And the ebook market seems to be lapping the, the printed book market. And I don't know what your royalty statements are like, but I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of your income now is from ebooks rather than published books, printed books. Is that true? Yeah, Narrow's Gate. It was about 15 ebooks sold to every paper book. And that was, it, the, the number would have been even larger, except that a couple of uh, bookstores throughout the country carried the book and we held events. So it might have been 17, 18 to 1 if we hadn't done that. You know, um, as you, you know, Otto, I lived through the collapse of the major label system in the music industry. Um, and I saw what happened there when they focused entirely too much on delivery systems and not on how to remodel their core business, which is finding good authors, developing good authors, and developing distribution networks through informed people. Um, and I was a little bit afraid that that was what was going to happen in, in traditional publishing. I withdrew after my first four novels for a number of reasons, one of which is while they were selling really well when Otto Penzler and his team would hand sell them, they were just dying in the chains. 
you know, the, the passion for my books was coming from the mystery community, not from the, the booksellers at large or the public at large. Secondly, I, I, didn't, I, I thought they were good, but I didn't want to be good. You know? I wanted to be great. Uh, or at least try to be great. Yeah. Uh, I said to my editor at the Wall Street Journal, I need some equilibrium in my career. I've either got to become a worse journalist or a better author. And he said, well, maybe you should try to become a better author. Now, while all these doubts were going on, the sort of earthquake in publishing came. I, I recall coming to see you one day and just saying, what's going to happen? You know, what, what, what's going to happen? Um, if I've landed on my feet, it's sort of half plan and half luck and mm -hmm. timing. Um, I think that I'm a better writer than I was then, and I think the market suits my temperament and the way I like to work with people. So it feels right for now. I don't know, we'll, maybe we'll meet in a year and do this again, but right now I think it, it's sort of right for me. Well, I'm glad that we're that you're here. I'm glad that you continued your career. I'm glad you're signing books for us tonight. And uh, I wish you lots of luck with it and look forward to doing this again next year. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. That's the end of the show. Thanks for listening and join us next time on the Mysterious Podcast.